I have this little phrase, besides God, if you believe in God, the most important person you are ever going to talk to is yourself. Mm. The last thing I do before I go to bed at night, hear this phrase, what you take to bed with you travels the night with you. I reflect back on the day and remind myself of four things I am thankful for that happened that day. Hi, everyone, and welcome to this episode of the podcast. And today's guest is Professor Paul McGee. He's a visiting professor at the University of Chester and one of Europe's leading motivational speakers on the subject of change, workplace relationships, leadership, customer service, resilience, well-being and communication. He's also a Sunday Times best-selling author, having sold over a quarter of a million books and has spoken in over 40 countries to date. His book, Sumo, became an instant bestseller and reached number one. Sumo is the ongoing culmination of over 25 years of work by Paul. His insights and unique engaging style of delivery have captured the attention of people around the globe and is now universally known as the Sumo Guy. Now more than ever, Paul feels passionately about Sumo and the difference it can make to people's lives. His best-selling books and sold-out presentations to audiences ranging in size from intimate workshops to packed conference halls are a hit all over the world. Cue the music, Professor Paul McGee. Megaverse, the digital frontier of tomorrow. Megaverse stands at the cutting edge intersection of technology and imagination. It's a virtual realm where the limitless expanse of the digital universe unfolds, offering users unparalleled experiences and interactions. With its advanced metaverse platform, users can craft unique avatars, forge connections, and even establish their own digital estates. It's more than just virtual reality. Megaverse is an expansive digital civilization teeming with opportunities for both individuals and brands. From immersive concerts to revolutionary retail experiences, Megaverse is redefining the way we engage with the digital world. As we stand on the brink of a new era where the lines between our physical reality and the digital realm blur, Megaverse is poised to lead the charge in this brave new world. Dive in and discover a universe without bounds. This really is the future. And lastly, thank you to Najahi Events, who have been sponsoring us now on the podcast for over a year. Najahi bring motivational speakers to the region to help inspire, educate and motivate you to achieve better success and live a better life. Professor Paul McGee, thanks for coming to join us on the show today. Spencer, it's wonderful to be with you finally. I feel like I know you having listened to so many of your podcasts. <laughs> I really do. It's like you're one of these people that's kind of like been in, in this kind of ether for some time of like, we need to get this guy on the show. And to find that we've got a few people in common that we're friends with as well makes it yeah. so much nicer because of that. But... The one person that said to me, what's the sumo guy all about? How are we going to get him at this desk with a microphone behind him? Was the guys that own this studios. And uh, earlier on this week, they had an idea that maybe you were a sumo guy rather than the sumo guy. <laughs> I do get when people meet me, they go, you're not what I expected. But anyway, <laughs> it keeps them curious and interested. Now, there's people in the US, people in the UAE and people here in the UK that will be listening and watching this episode right now. Some won't know who you are. So I want to go right to the beginning okay. and understand your journey and understand who you are and how did you get to where you are today? Okay, that's great. Well, I guess if you were to look at my childhood, it was, um, I think the word challenging comes to mind. So by the age of nine, I'd had four different father figures 
and I'd been to four different schools. So I had a, a, a mum who was always trying to do her best, massively believed in me, had a lot of drive. I suppose mistakes were made along the way. And it was um, an incredibly dysfunctional upbringing. I feel a bit emotional even recalling it now. Um, from the age of about 11 onwards, I um, I was in a home with my mum's husband. And uh, because he didn't like me, I would just always eat my meals, including Christmas Day, on my own in my bedroom. So um, that was painful. And interestingly enough, maybe why I feel a bit emotional is because this week, because I, I work now often doing, I mean, I write books, but I'm probably known best as a motivational speaker. But I was working with a foster agency this week and um, they had their senior leaders and they reckon they'll be in the UK. I don't know what it's like in the US and hopefully it's not that high in the UAE. There's going to be approximately 100,000 young people in the UK in the next few years who are going to be looking for foster parents. And, um, and I actually said to them, you know, a lot of speakers will start a talk and go, I'm delighted to be here today. And they just say it on autopilot without thinking. I rarely say that. I talk about, you know, the benefit I want to bring to people. But I actually said, I genuinely am really thrilled to be with you today because I don't come from a broken home. I come from four broken homes. And I know the impact you can have on kids' lives. And that's why I really am pleased to be with you. So... It was a tough start, definitely. Although, again, and my mum's still alive. She believed in me. She'd use this phrase, the world is your oyster. And although there was a lot of yeah, dysfunctional stuff going on, um, you know, football became a big thing for me. I had some good mates. And then, um, you know, over time, I managed to get a degree uh, which incorporated behavioural and social psychology. And in 1987, before most people were even born, I realised uh, Unilever, a big multinational, um, took on four graduates in the whole of the UK, just four, to specialise in human resources. And I was one of those four. And within 12 months, I'd lost my job through ill health. I became ill with an illness called chronic fatigue syndrome. We call it in the UK ME, myalgic encephalomyelitis. I went from high-flying graduate management trainee with other kind of kudos and status that goes with that to being what they then called in the UK invalidity benefit. So that's your, your starter for 10, Spencer, as a bit of a, an intro to my backstory. When that happened to you, how old were you? When I became ill, I was 24. 24 years old. And, and not often do you hear that talked about at that age. Often you hear this kind of the, 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 the term you know, burnout and stress and stress management and stuff and people being overwhelmed and yeah. that kind of stuff a little bit later. Sure. So well, how, how did that happen to you at 24? What, what, well, what, was, what was the course of events that led to it? Well, I mean... It's not really, people can get burnt out. This isn't about burnout. This is some kind of virus that the medical profession still don't fully understand or appreciate. So um, I'd had glandular, glandular fever the year before. I'd been recently married and all of a sudden, I mean, I, there were days I couldn't even wash myself. I'm 24. I had a walking stick and the only person who knew with the illness was in a wheelchair Um but um, I, and this is where why I'm passionate about the work you do, the work I do, that your guests get involved in, is um, I use this phrase, words 
change worlds. You could come across a word, a phrase, a quote that can have a profound impact on you. So I'm lent this set of cassette tapes by a sales guy. Um, I can't remember anything about those cassette tapes apart from one phrase. And that was, and I'll paraphrase it slightly, within every adversity, there is a seed of equal or greater opportunity. And that, you know, words change worlds. And I, you know, that's from um, over 35 years ago. And I remember that phrase and I thought, I have been hit with some adversity here, but could there somehow, I didn't know how, could there be a, a seed of equal or greater opportunity that could spring from that experience? And, and ultimately there was. And there was not, there was nothing in your, your family. No one had suffered anything like this before. It was, it was, you were unique to the situation. It was, yeah. I mean, the, the reality is in the UK at the time, eight out of 10 doctors didn't even believe it was a genuine illness. I mean, can you imagine you're a high flying 24 year old, you're recently married. My mum used to say, you know, the world is your oyster. I feel like I've got the world at my feet. This is an amazing opportunity. And, um, and then I'm on invalidity benefit and, because it wasn't believed as a genuine illness, my 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 doctor sent me to see a psychiatrist in Liverpool. You know, and I was saying, which I found a humiliating experience. Not going to Liverpool, but but seeing the psychiatrist. <laughs> and um, fortunately, the psychiatrist met with me once, and and actually said, maybe he caught me on a good day. He said, "You're one of the most positive people I've ever come across. I don't need to see you. It's not in your head. I don't know how this illness occurs." I don't know whether you'll ever recover from it, but you have not got, a, this is not a mental problem. And how did that impact you when he said that? I was humiliated to begin with to go. Yeah. But I was relieved that he realised I'm not trying to make this narrative up. Mm -hmm. And uh, I suppose I did feel as this struggling 24-year-old who, if you realise, you, you know, your life is almost like being, it wasn't life, it wasn't life, um, it wouldn't, it wouldn't, it wouldn't be something would cause death. It was not life threatening, but it was life limiting. And I had a lot of dreams and a lot of hopes and aspirations. And that can, when you have that experience, make you prone to depression. Mm -hmm. But no, I worked a lot on my attitude. I have this little phrase, besides God, if you believe in God, the most important person you are ever going to talk to, that you are ever going to talk to is yourself. Mm. And I had a physical battle. But the biggest battle I think any of us have is the battle between our ears. It's mm. what's going on up there that has a profound impact on everything that we do. Mm. I I couldn't agree with you more. It's like when you when you, it, it, people people try to hold something else other than themselves accountable for the conversation. They try and find an external source that mm. can can create that for them. Um, what's that book? Um, how to be your own therapist. Uh, I think it, when you, when you, what was that? Um, Owen O'Kane. Owen it's not one I'm familiar with, so I can't so help you out on that one. He's a therapist and he's like, you, you know, there's lots of people in the world that can't afford a therapist. Mm. But if we can teach teach ourselves to be our own therapist. Sure. Okay. Maybe that can take get, take the burden away and give us some steps to follow. Sharu yeah. um, Isaradi that was on the show this week as well, She she's worked with addiction in drug and alcohol and food addiction. 
And and again, it's just it's it's learning to have a conversation with yourself. And yeah, absolutely, th- that's where the big challenge lies. Yeah, and absolutely. I, um, but we the funny thing is we have conversations with ourselves all of the time. Mm. And so, you know, and I know some people think you're mad and whatnot. Oh, so not you're mad, but I'm mad. But people, people know me for being the guy that goes and looks in the mirror every morning. And once I've had a shower and got back from the gym and I have a shower and clean my teeth and that kind of stuff, I look in the mirror and I have a conversation and I look at my pupils. And I literally right. just stare into my pupils for about 30 seconds to a minute, depending. And I'm like, what's today going to be like? Is it going to be a good day? Or are we going to make some excuses? And I just have this and people are like, well, you actually talk out loud. I'm like, yeah, I talk out yeah. loud. And they're like, awful. I know, for me, but yeah. people look at me and they're like... Verbalising and articulating, hugely, hugely helpful for people. I know you've got lots so of skills levels. in this area, so we'll yeah. dive into that today. Sure. Okay, so you've got this illness. How yeah. long How long were you ill for? Well, I suppose I began to make a recovery after about three years, but the nature of the illness was I would improve and then relapse and improve and relapse. So I never knew if I was fully recovered, but after three years, the relapses were less severe. I knew I could have one again any moment, but I didn't need the walking stick. And I said to my wife, who'd been just absolutely incredible, Helen, if you think about it, she'd been married to me for a year when I became ill and she became my carer as well as working. And um, and I said, I'm going to try and get myself a little part-time job. I'd have done anything, stacking shelves in a supermarket, because I used to collect my invalidity benefit from the local post office on the same day old age pensioners collected their pension. So I've got this post office swarming with with old age pensioners and a 24-year-old with a walking stick. And when I got to the point of thinking, I reckon I could get something, but I couldn't get a job doing anything because no one would hire me. So it was in 1991, I I hired myself. I was amazing at the interview, the standout (laughs) candidate. I passed my own rigorous medical, held a mirror in front of myself, breathed on it, and it steamed up. I thought, you're in. And... um, and I'd love to say, and it's just been success after success, but I went self-employed. I worked with the Dale Carnegie organization. And in my first year of business, I turned over, I suppose if we do, if we're speaking in dollars, roughly two and a half thousand dollars in my first year. <laughs> um, and I paid no tax. If you want to know how to not pay any tax, don't apart, earn any from, money. <laughs> apart from live in Dubai, don't earn any money. Um, and we have something called National Insurance in the UK. I didn't have to pay that. But here's the funny thing. My accountant still had to make do my books at the end of my first year, and he basically sacked me. <laughs> so it was a it wasn't the most auspicious for starts, but you know what? In life, it was a start, and I think one of the things that people pr- can procrastinate so much, and sometimes if you think about words change worlds, sometimes look just start. You don't need to see the whole staircase of where you're going. Just take the next step. And by taking that next step and by I became, I know you'll deal with people who have overcome addiction. Here's an addiction I haven't overcome. And that is an addiction to learning and personal development. And people used to mock me in the 1980s because I'd be driving around in my little car, constantly listening to these audio cassettes. But it was feeding my mind and it was inspiring me and equipping me. And over time, things developed. And it was in the early 2000s that um, I started to use this phrase SUMO, which is an acronym, which uh, typically stands for shut up, move on. It's provocative. It gets people's attention. It's an umbrella term to describe a number of different ideas and principles for people to get the best out of themselves, get the best out of others and get the best out of life. But the shut up bit, and I know this is something you will relate to. It's saying, shh. 
take some time out. You know, we talk about in work, just keep your head down, keep your head down. No, if you want to get the best out of life, keep your head up. Look around and look out towards your future. Get off this autopilot. You know, when you when you get dressed in the morning, most people aren't thinking what to put on first, my left and my right shoe. You do it without thinking. When you're driving, sometimes you're on a long journey. You're going, what happened to the last 10 miles? You know, why am I in the back seat? It's because we're doing a lot of stuff on autopilot and the shut up, it was right. Get off autopilot, guys. You know, let's not live with a sense of being on autopilot and a sense of entitlement. Let's live intentionally with a sense of awe and appreciation. And that was the shut up bit. But then, in other words, let's reflect. But then let's move on. Because there's lots of people who do a lot of reflection. But what do you do with that reflection? So that's it evolved into being a book. Um, and I've adapted it because we've got a lot of schools interested. We've got a lot of public sector government organisations interested in sumo. And they love the ideas, but clearly there was a bit of an issue with the phrase for some people. Shut up, move on. So we adapted it to also stand for stop, understand, move on. And the thing that I didn't know when I started writing the book, which became ultimately a Sunday Times bestseller, is that sumo as a word, not as an acronym, but as a word in Latin, means to choose. And you know what, Spencer? Our choices matter. Our choices compound. Those daily choices, those daily decisions you make, over time will take you somewhere. And I've got a friend who's a leadership speaker, Drew, and he says this to me, Paul, every day is a choose day. C-H-O-O-S-E. And I think, and it sounds strange to be a motivational speaker to say the following, but I think what will take people further in life is not their motivation. It's their daily disciplines. Mm -hmm. It's their choices. Mm -hmm. That I know you get up early in the morning, you're at the gym at five, but I've got a funny feeling, and I could be wrong, you're not always waking up at whatever time you're waking up going, yippee, I feel motivated. You have made a choice. And I think leadership isn't always about going by how you're feeling that day. It's about what are my values? What are my goals? So what are the choices I need to make to try and achieve that goal and to live up to my values? And that's, in a sense, how Sumo started, really, and it's evolved ever since. Well, that sounds great. And you think about it, it makes a whole load of sense. And so why would you not follow that approach? Why would you not engage in something like that? But in reality, for most people, if you were to explain that, overwhelmingly, it would seem like that was a big mountain to climb. So maybe you could school me a bit. Maybe you could take me on a bit of a journey and maybe make me the student for the next 15 minutes or so. When you say it's a big mountain to climb, sorry, what do you mean by that? The reason that, that, that people don't take the action yeah. is because it's, it's in my, my belief, is for it, people, it's overwhelming. Mm. Things that you and I, <clears throat> and clearly we have alignment on some things, and I'm playing devil's advocate, hence the yep, reason for those sure. questions. Um, there's, there's many things that, that, that we're talking about. They're, they're common sense, and they're not Absolutely. overwhelming. Arguably underwhelming, if you want to, whatever the opposite is, overwhelming. Mm. <laughs> um, <coughs> but for a lot of people listening to this, they'll, 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 they'll use the phrase, which is the worst phrase that exists on the planet, which is, yeah, but. Mm. And they won't say, yeah, but your system's this or whatever. It's like, yeah, but 
I better put an excuse in front of it because that's another thing that I'm going to have to do that scares me or uh, means a commitment of some sort, means a, a bit of dedication, discipline and all those kind of things. Mm. So how does somebody get started thinking like this and then acting like this? I think this, I think self-awareness is crucial and I think this autopilot, it can be a massive barrier to people. So I I start with just, just saying, I'm not here to tell people to do anything. I'm saying we're not born with a set of tools and skills and insights to know how to get the best out of life. We make it up as we go along. We get stuff passed down to us by our parents. Some of it's helpful and some of it isn't. And I get people to think about, yeah, I suppose I do do a lot of stuff on autopilot, but I'm also keen to say this. It's not, I don't start with the premise, your life's a mess, your life's mediocre, I've got the answers. We're all on the same level as I'm, as far as I'm concerned. I celebrate every human being I come across and I say this, here's the good news. There is a load of stuff you're doing already on autopilot without thinking that is really effective. So my premise is you don't have to be ill to get better. We can always improve. Now, most people buy into that. And, and I'm just saying, look, we, we, we are faced with challenges in life. We've all got our challenges. So I'm not saying aim higher and be disciplined. I'm just saying, look, we have some challenges. I've had some building work done at my house recently. I can have motivated, enthusiastic, value-driven builders. That is not enough to accomplish what they need to do. They need tools to do the job. And what all I do is try and maybe get people to think a bit differently, think about possibilities, get them to realise that tomorrow can be different from today if they want it to be. But also it's about, and here's some tools that could help you. So the premise in which I operate is the three E's. I want to empower you. And that comes by changing the way you maybe think. That I think so many people can wear a, a victim T-shirt. Now, there are genuine victims in life, but people wear the victim T-shirt. They're always wanting to play the BSE game, blame someone else. And I've worn that T-shirt, Spencer. So I take the mick, if you like, out of myself and say, that's what I've done. But I start to empower people. I have this formula that I got from Jack Canfield, who wrote the book um, Chicken Soup for the Soul mm. series. And he has this formula. He hardly uses it. I've used it. I've developed it. It's a life changer for me. E plus R equals O. It's the event plus our response or our reaction that influences our outcome. And I get people to just, I use simple examples to help people realize, Core, if you'd have been in that situation, if you'd have responded differently, could you have got a different outcome from what just happened in that case study? And people go, yeah. And I go, guess what? You've got events going on in your life right now. But sometimes we think the outcome is inevitable. It's not. So I'm not really trying to say you need to make massive changes. And I'm just getting people to stop and understand, empower them, the three E's, empower them, um, equip them and encourage them. I think people need encouragement in life. We all need what I call the oxygen of encouragement. And I just get alongside people, either one to one or often speaking at conferences. I share some, I think Leonardo da Vinci said this simplicity is the ultimate sophistication five words simplicity is the ultimate sophistication 
I want to just share with you some simple tools and ideas of how me and a lot of other people, and I'm this down-to-earth Manchester lad. I'm not from California, and if you're from California, no disrespect, <laughs> but I'm a northerner, and I'm going to give you no bull. I'm going to tell it as it is, and I'm going to be practical. And I've, what, spoken to well over a million people. Sales of my books are getting up to around about half a million over a number of years. And... Um, I just love what I do, Spencer. I just love what I do. And if, if someone can take anything away that helps them in work or in their personal life, then that's a big thrill for me. Talk to me about the corporate world and, and, and the difference we make. So one of the businesses I own is a corporate wellness business called Safe Hands. And that, that business is started out focusing on teaching employees in companies how to um, deal with medical emergencies. Right. So we had a team of nurses were employed. And it it started from something that happened to me 12, 12 years ago. I was playing football with a bunch of other 40-year-olds at that time on a Tuesday night on an AstroTurf in a local school. Our session, accountants, lawyers, barristers, whatever it might be, they're professionals. There was a lad that was on the side and uh, his team were playing afterwards. He said, can I come and join you? Uh, my team playing half an hour. I'm like, come, come. So he came and started playing. After a few minutes, he fell over. We carried on playing, eventually we wandered over there. What's wrong with him? And someone shouted, he's epileptic. He's having a fit. Now, luckily, I've got an epileptic friend, so I know exactly what to do. I ran over there, got his tongue out of his mouth, got him into mm -hmm. the recovery position and got him, got him sorted out. After a while, he went, <gasps> took this big breath of air. I'm like, that's not epilepsy. Call an ambulance now. Ambulance took a while to come. Eventually, it was a helicopter that landed on the pitch. All of us were standing around as this lad was there. Luckily, the helicopter came. Paramedics took him off. The following morning, we called up the hospital just to make sure he was okay. And he died. He had a heart attack at 23. Now, a 23-year-old having a heart attack with 20, 40-year-old men that didn't understand first aid and couldn't perform CPR and mouth-to-mouth -mouth frightened the life out of me mm. and made me then go and get trained. And that's how then we started thinking about what kind of problem could it cause in schools and this kind of stuff. So we created a campaign. That campaign was called the, uh, the Safe and... No, it wasn't. It's called the Kids Initiative. Where we were teaching parents this. Then we created the Safe and Sound campaign where we went into companies to teach them that. And what we were doing, it was actually a, 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 a business lead generation tool to get mm. in there to talk to them about various types of insurance, medical insurance and stuff like that. All well and good. But wellness started to be an interesting conversation piece with the, the HR managers of these companies or HR directors. And nobody really talked about wellness. And we started to talk about partners in law firms being clinically obese and being a key man risk to that business and how they could solve that problem. And then COVID came. The moment COVID came, we could no longer do these workshops. And so we had to pivot with what we were doing and create content in a different way. Sorry for the long story. And then we started to look into wellness and how important it was. Mm. And we could see that HR directors were starting to see the the behavior patterns change, the engagement change with employees at work. And the bigger companies started to take that seriously. And now our business is a, a full-blown corporate wellness business that provides corporate wellness solutions to thousands of companies across the Middle East. Yeah. In a working environment, 
there are there are factors that that, that, that impact how people perform compared to entrepreneurs or solopreneurs or whatever that mm. may be. And and I find this quite interesting. If you're my boss and you tell me to be at work at eight o'clock every morning, okay, and we've got a meeting at ten past eight every morning, I'll gladly get up and go to that meeting. Over here. I'm the solopreneur and I say to myself tomorrow morning, I've got an eight o'clock meeting with myself. Mm -hmm. Okay. Be ready at eight o'clock because at 10 past eight, we get started. This falls down. Mm. This side is what literally people don't have then the, 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 the willpower almost to get themselves to a place where they can rely on themselves every day. Mm. The reason I go to the gym at five o'clock is because I don't want to let someone down. So I'd never bounce out of bed. I don't jump up and go, yay, gym day. Okay, every yeah. day. I get out of bed and go, oh, for fuck's sake. <laughs> you know, I go across to the bathroom with the other bedroom that I use. I have a shower, put my gym gear on, drive to work, try and find a cheerful tune to listen to on the way there, walk in there, go good morning to the employees, go and get on the running machine. And by 15 minutes of that, then I'm ready to go. But if I didn't have my personal trainer there, I wouldn't go. Mm. I just won't let him down. Okay, I'll find an excuse. And I see that with people in business. Who's holding them accountable for the kind of conversations they need to have so that they don't let themselves down? Does that make sense? Absolutely. I mean, my experience, I would say up until COVID, a lot of what I was doing around, I mean, I do a lot around self-leadership, general motivation, particularly a lot around change and resilience and well-being. And I had a lot of, you might call, hospitals and local governments wanting to do stuff. I actually, though, worked on and off for 10 years with Manchester City. So they'd realised... The football team? Yeah, Manchester City. So... Well, yeah. you can't say that out loud in here. <laughs> I do. I have worked with United before, but I've worked a lot more with City. Just shut up and move on. You'll get over it. Come on, put your victim T-shirt on later, Spencer. Build a bridge. Get over it, mate. There's always next year. Um... And I mean, I support Wigan Athletics, so oh, I've really God. got a major problem. Yeah, <laughs> one of my best friends. That's why Wigan we're both fans. wearing black. You knew I supported Wigan. Um, <laughs> but what I found was now with City, you know, in a sense, a sporting corporate world, they had realised the importance of investing in people and realising we can train you, and if you injure your knee, we can get the best surgeon in Europe or in the world to operate on that knee. But how do you psychologically and emotionally deal with the fact that you might not be playing for a year? And I got involved in a lot of different aspects of players' and staff's lives. In the corporate world, I suddenly realised with COVID, I think some people had seen wellness in certain parts of the world up until, say, 2020 as a bit pink and fluffy. Mm -hmm. And I have this phrase, well-being leads to well-doing. And I'm also a great believer that we all need, I'm a great believer in being proactive. I don't want you to come to me when you've got loads of problems and you feel like you may have depression and your marriage is broken up and everything. I want you to just be proactively giving people life tools, insights, ideas to, to help them get the best out of themselves and others. Brighton Hove Albion Football Club contacted me during COVID and said, will you do an online that we're going to make available to players and staff? GlaxoSmithKline, um, Adidas, some big major organisations, some to be fair to work with before, but they suddenly were realising, we need to really realise that this is not pink and fluffy. I would say well-being isn't nice to do, it's necessary to do. We need to know how to thrive and flourish in life. And one of the things I say to managers is the biggest impact 
And the biggest impact on an employee's well-being in the workplace is their relationship with their boss. When it comes to the entrepreneur or the solopreneur, success comes from the support of others. And there's a lot of groups, like I work with an organisation called Vistage. They're a chief exec group. They meet once a month, business issues. They have a speaker coming every month. I, we were not, I don't think we were designed as human beings to be on our own. We need connection and your connection with your personal trainer gets you to do stuff. I think it is not helpful for people. You do not thrive on your own. You need other people around Can you. I, let's just discuss that for a minute because I, I thoroughly agree that loneliness has probably been the biggest cause of distress in my life over the last 53 years. Okay. And whether that's uh, loneliness created by myself or loneliness created by others, it doesn't really matter. Loneliness, I find very, very dark. However, you have these people that say, that's because you're an extrovert. Introverts don't get their energy from people. So Mm. actually, they don't get lonely like you would get lonely. They're quite like their own company. Mm. What do you say to that? I think we need to understand, first of all, that there's a bit more nuance than will you get lonely because you're an extrovert. There's a spectrum to this. And there's some people who are incredibly extrovert and they'll go out to always find people. You know, they can be staying in a hotel on their own. They're not going to have room service. They're not going to just sit at a table with their Kindle eating their meal. They'll be at the bar. They'll be having conversations. I am labelled often an extrovert, but I enjoy my time out at times. Ultimately, wherever you're on that spectrum of introversion or extroversion, we all do need people. You could argue some extroverts might need more people, but we will not thrive and flourish as human beings if we are on our own, you know, for a vast majority of our time. And that is the danger. And I think some organisations are reeling this, realising this with the whole issue of homeworking, mm-hmm. um, that you're not getting that energy that comes from being around other people. And, and I, I think there are some 20-odd-year-olds who've gone through COVID, got their job, hardly seen anyone from day to day, apart from on a screen. I think that's that can spell trouble for the future. Is it? Well, my, my, my daughters both went through COVID at university. Yeah. <clears throat> I still had to pay all the fees, all the halls of residence fees and everything else that went on, but they were essentially remote working, doing yeah. their studies remotely. The discipline, the motivation, the dedication required to sit on the end of your bed, on your dressing table, wherever it might be convenience, on the dining table if there is one to go to, and focus on the amount of learning that has to be done at university and to get the most out of it. Mm. To me, I, I, I personally would have really struggled because I have concentration issues, but I would have struggled to be focused as a university student. There's no way in the world online learning beats sitting in class. I don't, I don't think there's an example that I can imagine where that makes more sense. You know, one daughter studying film, the other one studying uh, uh, art and graphic design. And, and, and again, whether you're studying international politics or whatever that might be, being around people, is there no value or what what stops there being value from an employer's point of view in human interaction to share ideas, to brainstorm, to be creative? And that can be working for KPMG or Pricewaterhouse as an auditor. Mm. There's still creativity required in conversations. What about that, that stuff that I like? I like to get to work at seven o'clock in the morning and talk about the football 
while mm. I have a coffee. You know, I like that 15 minutes of, did you see that last night? Okay, did you say, oh man, did you, what about him? I like that because it gets me connected with people for the day. Yeah. I like the banter and the interaction. I want to hear the funny story about how the Wally got stuck in the traffic last night and you know, all that stuff, you know, that, that everyday stuff. Being in the office, I believe, is a lot better. But companies have taken this four-day work week approach or work remotely. You know, my daughter's first job, not Katie Taylor, her first job, she goes into work every other day. Her first job. So she leaves university, she starts a job at the company she wants to work for, and they say, come in Tuesdays and Thursdays. <laughs> and I'm like, why did you take the job? Um, do you enjoy sitting on the dining room table in your one-bedroom flat, okay, for three days a week? She's like, no. She goes, but they don't, they don't want to sit anymore because we work remotely. I think there are, there isn't a one-size-fits-all approach to all of this. There are some people who can work well on their own. So I think we all need people. No, I know, I, think, I know there's people but, that could work well on their own. And, and also sometimes... They get more done in three hours than they get done in six hours. I've got to sit in the traffic and all that kind of stuff. But also, there can be, you talked about that social engagement, which is great, but sometimes there can be those uh, distractions that other people provide. And sometimes also, you can get into the. Spending time with people who are mood hoovers, you know, they see a bit of joy and positivity around the place and they go, we need to suck that right out of here. <laughs> spend a bit of misery in its place. And I, so I know someone who works as part of a team and she works with an older group of people. She herself is only 30, but she's working with people who have been in the organisation 20 years. When she's in the office, they suck the life out of her. She actually enjoys some working from home. She she thrives on it. Yeah, but that's, so, because, that's because the company got the culture wrong. Yeah, so it's not black and white, is, is what I'm saying. And anyway, it's 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 food for thought. Um, and I but I, I can I can appreciate there could be a hybrid approach. But I think some organisations in the early part of COVID said we have no intention of ever having people back in the office. They are now going back on what they've said because they realise the the importance of that emotional connection that we need with each other. Fifty percent of commercial real estate in Manhattan is empty at the moment. Price of commercial real estate is falling, let alone the follow-on effects of the coffee shops, the cake shops, the 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 the, the gyms, the 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 newspaper stands, the hot dog stands all around that 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 earn their money from those people coming to work mm. every single day. The impact is colossal as it goes all the way down. Sure. So we kind of agree, don't we? Some bits we don't agree on. <laughs> I'm a bit extreme. Well, you're, well, you're, you're, can, you're, I, you're... can I share something with you? One of my sumo principles. Will Come this on be it. a good point? Go for it. You see, I am a great believer. You want to empower people, which is all about the change of mindset. You want to encourage them, but it's also about equipping people. So my, my sumo principles have seven sumo ideas. And one of them is called Remember the Beach Ball. Now, all the research suggests that people's fulfillment and happiness in life is inextricably linked to the quality of their relationships they have with other people. But how many times do we see conflict escalate? Do we see, you know, family members not talking to each other for years, colleagues who don't cooperate, you know, they, they, they're not collaborating because there's a conflict. Let me give you this example. So I'm holding this beach ball in front of you. And if I was to ask you what colours you see, I'm hoping you'll say red, yellow and orange. Yeah, I can see red, yellow now, and orange. Now, the thing is, Spencer, I'm looking at things from another perspective. We're looking at the same beach ball, but I could represent 
your client, your customer, your colleague, one of your children, your partner, a family friend. And I'm looking at the same situation as you. And we've just been talking about working from home, one thing or another. You've got your view of the beach ball based on your, maybe your values, your experience, your expertise, all kinds of factors influence why you see the world the way you do. But we assume that how we see the world is correct. The point I want to make is, I'm not saying to you, your view is incorrect. But it could be incomplete. And so often in our relationships and in our communication, we're seeing things from our perspective. We're not prepared to be curious and open-minded. I think we, we still value decisiveness and being authoritative and assertive when sometimes being humble and curious and saying, look, this is how I see it with my from my perspective, with the knowledge I've got. But hey, new starter, you've got a different view of the world than me, a different view of the beach ball. I'd be curious to know how you see things. And we talk a lot about diversity and inclusion in the workplace. Brilliant. I celebrate that. But diversity and inclusion isn't just simply diversity, isn't simply about ethnicity and gender. You and I could look the same, but we could think very differently. And you want neurodiversity. You want people who might see the, the beach ball differently to you. My team, I've got two, two people who work on my behalf who deliver my material. I think we see the beach ball very similar. But ultimately, because of that difference, I, my business is enriched. I include their perspectives. And I celebrate the fact that we do see things differently. And perhaps rather than think, well, in this very binary, polarised world, particularly in the area of politics, where if I see things differently from you, I cancel you. I start insulting you rather than going, Spencer, help me understand why you see it that way, please. And then once I've listened to you, would it be all right if I share my perspective? This becomes less threatening rather than say, I disagree, you're wrong, which can immediately put people on the defensive. It's like we, we, we operate, we open the channels of communication and actually sometimes we can see things differently from each other and maybe we could both be right in certain situations. And we've had this, this conversation about homeworking. It's not a question of, well, come on, do we agree or don't we agree? It's about, hey, come on, folks. Bringing your perspective. You know, people in the UAE, different culture to myself. An Arab culture that's maybe different to my Western culture. I want to celebrate the diversity of that. I want to understand why do you see the world the way you do? Abdul Rahman, who you've had on your show, and we've become very close. He's a very devout Muslim. I would actually come from a more Christian perspective on things. But we share, you know, our, our views on certain things. You know, it's the you know, the Muslim and the Christian having a conversation about life and about values and about how we can make a difference in life. That's what I want to celebrate rather than go, I've got my view of the beach ball and I'm right and you're wrong. That does not, no one in the world has ever changed their opinion by being told you're wrong, but be curious, be humble and listen. No one has ever changed their opinion by being told they were wrong. Well, that's so profound when you think about well, it. If you think it's, about it's, it's, so, what just, did Hillary Clinton call um, call Donald Trump supporters in the twenty sixteen presidential election? You're a basket case of deplorables. There wasn't a Trump supporter watching her until they're going. Do you know Hillary? You're dead right. I'm. What was I thinking? I'll vote for you. 
Do you know what they did? They made flipping I'm one of the deplorables on T-shirts and on baseball caps. So we become more entrenched in our view and in our opinion. And the beach ball is saying, welcome other perspectives. In the past, before I came across that as a metaphor, if you said to me, well, I disagree, I think you're wrong, I wouldn't listen to understand your perspective. I would listen to defend my perspective. And we wouldn't get anywhere. Mm. Now, if you say, well, I disagree, I think you're wrong there, Paul, I'll say, far away, Spencer, I'd love to hear your perspective on that. And then I might sometimes go, do you know what? I'd never thought of that. Thanks for sharing that with me. That's what helps relationships. Makes a lot of sense. Talk to me about um, happiness and success. Are they, are they mutually exclusive? I'll give you an example. When I, was, when I was younger, until I was 42 years old, success equaled happiness. Okay? Being successful made me happy. Okay, and it, there was a yardstick to that. So there was a measurement gauge. And as long as I was successful on that yardstick, I felt happy. I didn't feel disillusioned. I didn't feel um, unfulfilled. I felt happy. I was very clear on that. Mm. After the work that I've done over the last 10 years with various different organizations, success I measure so much differently. And... I care, I care very much about everyone allowing people's success not to be measured in what they think success is. Mm. So one of my friends, Maria, who is, has saved 600 children out of the slums of Bangladesh, given them all an education and a future, and she's got 10 Guinness World Records by climbing crazy mountains and doing Ironmans and stuff along the way. That, to me, is a, a, a true definition of success. Okay? That, 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 but if you'd have asked me that question 12 years ago, I'd be like, I think happiness, first of all, I'd say about happiness. Happiness is, is not something to pursue. I think it's a byproduct of a life lived well. Success means different things to different people. I once heard Tony Robbins say, hands up in, you know, in this audience of however many thousand people. How many would say you're a success? And it was a British audience and probably only a, a quarter of them put their hands up. And then he said, have you ever defined what success even means to you? Now, the trap I fell into, Spencer, years and years ago was this, and it was happiness linked to success. So the phrase I would use over and over again is, I'll be happy when, dot, dot, dot. So I'll be happy when I've got a book deal for Sumo. I'd written four books prior to that. They'd done okay. Sumo was my potential big breakthrough. I had 13 rejections. It's now published in 13 different languages, the most recent one, Ukrainian. But it used to be, I'll be happy when I've got a book deal. I'll be happy when it makes it into the charts in WH Smith's. It makes the charts. My wife's going, you must be thrilled. I'll be happy when it sells 10,000. It sells 10,000. I'll be happy when it sells 50. And she's almost like, come in, can you just celebrate and, and acknowledge what you've achieved? And I'm constantly, and weight-wise, I'll be happy when I'm a certain weight. So I was actually living in perpetual unhappiness because I was never satisfied. And you wonder why people burn out. They're constantly pursuing. Now what I would say sometimes is, I'm happy and I want to write another book or I want to get X amount of followers on TikTok to reach more people. Um, so for me, I've just chosen, because I'm, as you would be, a massive advocate of appreciation and gratitude. 
the last thing I do before I go to bed at night. Hear this phrase. What you take to bed with you travels the night with you. What you take to bed with you travels the night with you. And I don't mean your teddy bear. What's the last thing you think about, talk about, watch, read or listen? Loads of people take to bed with them their worries and the things they didn't get achieved. I take to bed with me, my head hits the pillow. What am I thankful for? And for is spelled F-O-U-R. I reflect back on the day and remind myself of four things I am thankful for that happened that day. I always have more than four. I don't get out of bed in the morning until I've repeated that exercise. So I, I wouldn't even say I'm happy. Sometimes I've been ecstatic to be alive. You know, if you wake up feeling, you know, tired and miserable, just remember this. You woke up. I'll be 60 next year. Someone just told me last night, do you know you're going to get your bus pass next year? I'm like, oh my goodness. And there's that sense of you're getting old, you're getting old. Do you know what? Getting old is a reward for not dying young. And I want to celebrate my age. I want to celebrate life. I want to celebrate every moment, people I meet, people I disagree with, people who see the beach ball differently from me. And I just want to, you know, there was a film that had a profound impact on me. Um, Dead Poet Society with the late Robin Williams in it. That came out, interestingly enough, in 1989. That was the year I lost my job through ill health. That was the year Stephen Covey's book, Seven Habits of Highly Effective People, came out. 1989, profound year for me, because one, that book and, car and that film, Carpe Diem, Seize the Day, and Covey, the book comes out in the very month I'm on invalidity benefit. 19 years later, a door opens for me in Australia because of my sumo book. I speak at the same conference as Covey and get to have a 15-minute private one-to-one -one conversation. I am just wanting to be curious. Success, you know what? People say, what do you want to be remembered for? And it's easy to go, the books I wrote, Hey, do you know what I, want to be, what I want to be remembered for above all? He was a good husband. He wasn't perfect, but he was a good husband. He was a good dad, even though my son might go, why did you get me to support Wigan Athletic? He was a good dad. And I think my friends, I want my friends to say he was a good mate. If I've achieved that, that's one of the most important legacies for me. What, what do those closest really think of me? That's massively important. Success and happiness, maybe they go hand in hand. I'll let other people debate that. Mm. So I've got a friend of mine who's 10 years older than me, so he's 63 years old, and he's from Wigan. His name's Steve Rigby. And we were talking one day about pessimism, optimism, realism, and we. this person knows my dad as well. And so my, I said to my dad, you, you're a pessimist. And he said, I'm not a pessimist, I'm a realist hear that a lot yeah so I was chatting to Steve about that who knows my dad too he said isn't the only choice optimism and I was like what do you mean he said well when you consider what the other options are how could you how could you ever get your place to a place where you could think anything other than optimism because everything else will defeat you and I find that quite an interesting concept how people don't look optimistically do you see that? Again, it's more nuanced and more less black and white than we sometimes appreciate. Is it? Yes, it is, Spencer. God, Let me explain. Educate First me. First of all, you know that analogy, is your glass half full or yeah, yeah. half empty? Some guy said to me, 
My wife, my wife hasn't even got a glass. You know what I mean? <laughs> now, here's the thing. We evolved as a species. The Homo sapiens evolved to have an inbuilt negativity bias. If you and I, 200,000 years ago, were on the African savannah hunting gazelles, apologies if you're a vegetarian, but halloumi burgers weren't available at the time. You see all these gazelles, but in the distance, you may says to you, or you said to me, hey, Paul, hang on, shh, crouch down. I can see a saber-toothed tiger. Um, I'm I'm not actually going, come on, let's be optimistic here. It looks pretty friendly. It's probably hungry. You're going to go into your freeze, fight, or flight mode. Yeah. And for me, the only thing I'm bothered about is that I can run faster than you, Spencer. So I don't have to outrun the saber-toothed tiger. I just need to outrun <laughs> you, okay? So we need a little bit of that negativity bias because as a, as a species, we, oh, bizarrely, are very survival- to to fear. Fear can save us. Because if you didn't fear the saber-toothed tiger, you wouldn't be having lunch, you'd be someone else's lunch. So let's first of all stop and understand that occasionally um, slight pessimism about something, which can then go, I'm a little bit, you know, if I decided, um, well, just be optimistic, the trains are always going to run on time in Britain, and I'm sure if you leave at one o'clock, you'll be ready to be in the studio with Spencer. No, if I'm going I'm going to build in an extra two-hour window because maybe there could be a delay. Maybe there could be a problem. Maybe there could be, you know, well, anyway, we don't need to go into the details of why trains can be delayed, but, you know, the, the <laughs> in the UK at the moment, the tracks are too hot. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> so, first of all, we do have an inbuilt negativity bias. Is optimism, though, still important? Is positivity still important? Absolutely. Because in my, my language, um, your brain helps you find what you're looking for. Mm -hmm. That's why gratitude is so important to me. But there are people who have trained their brain to be aware of their positives and the possibilities. But it's like, for some people, it's like negativity sticks to the brain like Velcro. It's like having chewing gum in your hair. And some of the positives that happen in people's lives, it's like that part of the brain's covered in Teflon. It's why I spoke to a group of people recently. I said, what are some of your biggest challenges in life? A lack of confidence, a lack of self-worth, loads of self-doubt. You know what's interesting because of how we're sometimes wired? It's like we write our successes in sand and we carve our failures in concrete. But there's a part of your primitive emotional brain that goes, but remember the failure because you don't want to repeat that again. But then I think now we get a distorted, unhelpful view of life. I came up with um, seven questions that you could reflect on, not all necessarily at the same time, but maybe you've got an issue or a challenge. Maybe someone's listening now watching. They've got an issue or a challenge going on in their world. And rather than me just patronise you and say, be optimistic, be positive, <laughs> which is important, but it's also... Yes, but how? Question number one. Just ask yourself, okay, so where is this issue on a scale of one to ten? In brackets where ten equals death or the end of the world. And, and I realise there's been times I've reacted to a situation that's actually a one as if it's a flipping eight or a nine. And straight away, what you do with that question, the more rational, the prefrontal cortex part of your brain is where your language centre is. <clears throat> so when you talk out, when you're speaking to yourself in the mirror in the morning, you're not just activating your emotional part of your brain, but your more logical, rational part of your brain. So on a scale of 1 to 10, where 10's death, where is it? My daughter's bedroom, when she was growing up as a kid, I realised that's not a 9. It's a 1. 
all right, I can't find you because there's so much on the floor. But <laughs> second question, how important will this be in six months' time? We can be very much locked into and sucked into our present moment. You know, I'm having a website built. It's taking time to get built. There are issues. There are some tweaks. There are some technical problems. And I'm like, Paul, how important is this going to be in six months' time? When I released my first video on TikTok, within the first two months, I'd got there were cats on TikTok with more followers than me. <laughs> and my son said to me, how important will it be in six months' time? Now I've got over 40,000 followers, 3.5 million views. So people need to sort of get a sense of perspective. Scale of one to 10, where 10's death, where is it? How important will it be in six months' time? Number three is a really interesting one, just to press pause. Is my response appropriate and effective? Remember I said to you earlier on that formula E plus R equals uh -huh. O, it's the event plus my response uh -huh. that influences the outcome. Well, you've got a choice in how you respond. If you're not getting the outcome you want, maybe you need to think about your response. So is my response appropriate and effective? Number four, great antidote if you found yourself ever wearing the victim T-shirt. Just simply ask yourself, how can I or how can we influence or improve the situation? Not... How can I change this overnight? How can I become a multi-millionaire in the next 12 months? Just simply at times, how can I influence or improve this? Number five is what can I learn from this? We can be so easy to criticise ourselves. I sometimes say, you know, if you spoke to your friends like you speak to yourself, how many friends would you have? So have a kinder, more constructive conversation. What can I learn from this? Number six, what would I do differently next time? And number seven, and I'm going to share a brief story around this. What can I find that's positive in this situation? So your positivity question does come. What can I find that's positive? A few years ago, I'm on the M25 getting, you know, in southeast England. For those of you that don't know, the M25, notorious motorway. I've driven 30 miles in three hours. I'm wanting to find the flipping victim T-shirt. Um, and I've still got over 200 miles to drive. And I ask myself that seventh question, what can I find that is positive in this situation? And I suddenly thought to myself, because your brain helps you find what you're looking for, but you've got to get steer it to know what to look for. I said to myself, do you know what? When I was ill with chronic fatigue syndrome, I was too ill to drive. And I didn't know if I'd ever work again in my life. And I didn't know whether I'd be well enough for us even to try and start a family. What can I find that is positive in this situation? I am stuck on the M25 today because I've been speaking at a conference. And when I get home tonight, I will get home to my wife and my two kids. That's what I can find that is positive in this situation. And you know what was amazing? The traffic remained the flipping same. In fact, <laughs> it took me eight hours to get home that night. But you know what was interesting? The journey changed, not because my external circumstances changed. They didn't, but my attitude towards them did. Mm -hmm. And people are listening to this and are watching this, and they've got all kinds of challenges in their life. And I'm not saying just be positive and optimistic and all those challenges will disappear. I'm saying I want to empower you, and that's about changing your mindset. I want to encourage you but I want to equip you as well. And by going through some of those questions, maybe all seven or just picking one or two, that's partly getting your mindset to look at things in a different way, respond differently, and therefore get better outcomes. Wow.
that, that it doesn't matter who you are, what stage in life you're at, what your, your social conditioning is, what your employment status is, everybody can apply that. I, I, I look at stuff like that and it's like you're giving me a step-by-step guide, okay, which is almost foolproof to take me to the end of that journey. And I just think that if, so what, this is always my question though. That's, that's so easy to follow. I've got it here. I've looked at it as you've been talking about it. What is going to get in the way of me applying this? I think we are sometimes victims to our habits. I think you, this won't be a barrier to you, but for some <clears> people, there'll still be some skepticism and some cynicism. One of the biggest criticisms I get about Masumo book, because it's all very simple, but I'll say it again, simplicity is the ultimate sophistication. And I think sometimes, I think the resistance and the blockage to my message and to the message you might get from other people is, is I think, fear. I think that even if people haven't got a great life, it's a life they're familiar with. They're comfortable with it. Because when I start to say, here's some tools, here's some tools for you that could actually improve your life, um, that does put a little bit of onus on you now applying those tools, far better for some people to feel like, what a load of rubbish that is. You know, that's a flipping American hype. And that's their way of actually saying, I'm comfortable being here and I've not got the desire or the courage to want to actually move out of my comfort zone and change. I'd rather wear my victim T-shirt, blame someone else, blame the government, Blame my family. Yeah. Blame where I was born. Yeah. Blame the politicians, because I'm comfortable to do what anyone wants to do. And your listeners, I think, we're, um, and people are watching, we're preaching to the converted. We really are. So why I speak at conferences is I want to la- get people to laugh, because I think laughter turns walls into windows. So I try and get people on board. I talk about my own challenges, my story, when I've worn the yellow T-shirt, and just say, hey, we're in this together. And I'm not trying to say you've got to change your life overnight. I'm saying, here's some tools that could start to make a little bit of a difference for you. Mm. And, and I talk about how, you know, my son asked me for nearly two years to go on TikTok and I didn't do it. And now I'm regretting that I didn't do it earlier. But hey, how at least I finally started and we're getting somewhere. So I just... I just want to be honest with people. As I say, my not Californian motivation, but my Mancunian motivation, what we call people from Manchester, Mancunians, tell it as it is. No bull. And let's be really practical. I love your desire to want to try and make this world a better place by doing this. I think we both are aligned with the fact that it's just that I just want people to win. All right. And it doesn't matter what it is that they win at. I just want them to win. And I feel like I want to shake people and change their state. And I think of the the, the black and white movies that used to be on with Humphrey Bogart and Cary Grant. And you'd have the hysterical woman that would be standing there and they'd slap her in the face. Not that you'd ever get away with that nowadays, but they'd slap her in the face. And in that moment, change her state. And by changing the states, you've got to look at the situation just slightly differently. Mm. And for me, is it can we change the state and then yeah. can we apply these tools and these principles to take our life in the direction that we really want it to go in? And in doing so, remember, well-being leads to well-doing. When I apply this, my anxiety levels, which I've struggled with anxiety at times, but I manage that, my stress levels, my confidence levels, that makes me a better human being. 
And I'm not here to live my life purely for me and my fulfillment. I, I you tell people that they're utterly, totally and completely mad. They make a difference. And we, our lives matter. Your podcast matters. My messages matter. The messages that people are saying to their children, to their neighbours, to their colleagues, we, we matter. And if we are better equipped to deal with some of life's challenges, I think we'll enjoy life more. And I think we'll make more of a difference to other people as well. And that's what it's about. Professor Paul McGee, thank you so much for coming to join us today. That was epic. Thank you. It's been an absolute pleasure. 